Welcome to this week in surgery your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This week in surgery has you covered. Our podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the surgical field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With this week in surgery, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine, including in the operating room. This week in surgery we will be discussing articles published in November 2023 issues. First, Annals of Surgery. Is delaying a coloanal anastomosis the ideal solution for rectal surgery? Analysis of a multicentric cohort of 564 patients from the Grecker. Objectives. To assess the specific results of delayed coloanal anastomosis, DCAA, in light of its two main indications. Background. CA can be proposed either immediately after a low interior resection, primary CA, or after the failure of a primary pelvic surgery as a salvage procedure, salvaged CA. Methods. All patients who underwent CA intervention at 30 Grecker-affiliated hospitals between 2010 and 2021 were retrospectively included. Results. 564 patients, male, 63%, median age, 62 years, interquartile range, 53 to 69, underwent a CA, 66% for primary CA and 34% for salvaged CA. Overall morbidity, major morbidity, and mortality were 57%, 30%, and 1.1%, respectively, without any significant differences between primary CA and salvaged CA, P equals 0.933, P equals 0.238, and P equals 0.410, respectively. Anastomotic leakage was more frequent after salvaged CA, 23%, than after primary CA, 15%, P equals 0.016. 55 patients, 10%, developed necrosis of the intraabdominal colon. In multivariate analysis, intraabdominal colon necrosis was significantly associated with male sex, odds ratio or equals 2.6795% C, 1.22 to 6.49, P equals 0.020, body mass index greater than 25, or equals 2.7895% C, 1.37 to 6.00, P equals 0.006, and peripheral artery disease, or equals 4.6895% C, 1.12 to 19.1. P equals 0.030. The occurrence of this complication was similar between primary CA, 11%, and salvaged CA, 8%, P equals 0.289. Preservation of bowel continuity was reached three years after CA in 74% of the cohort, primary CA, 77% versus salvaged CA, 68%, P equals 0.031. Among patients with a commanded without diverting stoma, 75%, 301-403, have never required a stoma at the last follow-up. Conclusions. CAN makes it possible to definitively avoid a stoma in 75% of patients when mannered initially without a stoma and to save bowel continuity in 68% of the patients in the setting of failure of primary pelvic surgery. Refining Auxiliary Orthotopic Liver Transplantation, 
AOLT, improves outcomes in adult patients with acute liver failure. Objective To investigate whether and how experience accumulation and technical refinement simultaneously implemented in auxiliary orthotopic liver transplantation, AOLT, may impact on outcomes. Background Old for acute liver failure, ALF, provides the unique chance of complete immunosuppression withdrawal after adequate native liver remnant regeneration that is a technically demanding procedure. Our department is a reference center for ALF and an early adopter of old. Methods This is a single-center retrospective before-slash-after study of a prospectively maintained cohort of 48 patients with ALF who underwent ALT between 1993 and 2019. In 2012, technical refinements were implemented to improve outcomes, I, favoring the volume of the graft rather than that of the native liver, II, direct anastomosis of graft hepatic artery with recipient right hepatic artery instead of the use of large size vessels, III, and decide hepaticocolidocostomy instead of bilioenteric anastomosis. Early experience, 1993 to 2011, group, N equals 26, and recent experience, 2012 to 2019, group, N equals 22, were compared. Primary endpoint was 90-day severe morbidity rate, clavindindo greater than or equal taia, and secondary endpoints were overall patient survival and complete immunosuppression withdrawal rates. Results Compared with the earlier experience group, the recent experience group was associated with a lower severe complication rate, 27% versus 65%, p less than 0.001, as well as less biliary, 18% versus 54%, p equals 0.017, and arterial, 0% versus 15%, p equals 0.115 complications. The 1, 3, and 5-year patient survival was significantly improved, 91%, 91%, 91% versus 76%, 61%, 60%, p equals 0.045. The rate of complete immunosuppression withdrawal increased to 94% versus 70%, p equals 0.091, with no need of long-term graft explant. Conclusion these technical refinements favoring the liver graft and reducing morbidity may promote old implementation among LT centers. Novel Benchmark for Adult-to-Adult Living Donor Liver Transplantation, Integrating Eastern and Western Experiences Objective to define benchmark values for adult-to-adult living donor liver transplantation, LDLT. Background. LDLT utilizes living donor hemi-liver grafts to expand the donor pool and reduce waitlist mortality. Although references have been established for donor hepatectomy, no such information exists for recipients to enable conclusive quality and comparative assessments. Methods. Patients undergoing LDLT were analyzed in 15 high-volume centers, greater than or equal to 10 cases slash year, from three continents over five years, 2016 to 2020, with a minimum follow-up of one year. Benchmark criteria included a model for end-stage liver disease less than or equal to 20, no portal vein thrombosis, no previous major abdominal surgery, no renal replacement therapy, no acute liver failure, and no intensive care unit admission. Benchmark cutoffs were derived from the 75th percentile of all centers' medians. Results 
Of 3,636 patients, 1864, 51%, qualified as benchmark cases. Benchmark cutoffs, including post-transplant dialysis, less than or equal to 4%, primary non-function, less than or equal to 0.9%, non-anastomotic strictures, less than or equal to 0.2%, graft loss, less than or equal to 7.7%, and redo liver transplantation, LT, less than or equal to 3.6%, at one year were below the deceased donor LT benchmarks. Bile leak, less than or equal to 12.4%, hepatic artery thrombosis, less than or equal to 5.1%, and comprehensive complication index, CCI registered, less than or equal to 56, were above the deceased donor LT benchmarks, whereas mortality, less than or equal to 9.1%, was comparable. The right hemiliver graft, compared with the left, was associated with a lower CCI registered score, 34 versus 21, P less than 0.001. Preservation of the middle hepatic vein with the right hemiliver graft had no impact neither on the recipient nor on the donor outcome. Asian centers outperformed other centers with CCI registered score, 21 versus 47, P less than 0.001, graft loss, 3.0% versus 6.5%, P equals 0.002 and redo LT rates, 1.0% versus 2.5%, P equals 0.029. In contrast, non-benchmark low-volume centers displayed inferior outcomes, such as bile leak, 15.2%, hepatic artery thrombosis, 15.2%, or redo LT, 6.5%. Conclusions Benchmark LDLT offers a valuable alternative to reduce waitlist mortality. Exchange of expertise, public awareness, and centralization policy are, however, mandatory to achieve benchmark outcomes worldwide. Outcome after intestinal transplantation from living versus deceased donors, a propensity match cohort analysis of the International Intestinal Transplant Registry. Objective To describe the worldwide experience with living donation, LD, in intestinal transplantation, itch, and compare short-term and long-term outcomes to a propensity matched cohort of deceased donors. Background Itch is a rare life-saving procedure for patients with complicated intestinal failure, if living donation, LD, itch has been performed with success, but no direct comparison with deceased donation, DD, has been performed. The Intestinal Transplant Registry, ITR, was created in 1985 by the Intestinal Transplant Association to capture the worldwide activity and promote centers' collaborations. Methods Based on the ITR, 4,156 itch were performed between January 1987 and April 2019, of which 76, 1.8%, were LD, including 5 combined liver itch, 7 itch colon, and 64 isolated itch. They were matched with 186 DD itch for recipient age slash sex, weight, region, if cause, retransplant, pretransplant status, ABO compatibility, immunosuppression, and transplant date. Primary endpoints were acute rejection and 1-5-year patient-slash-graft survival. Results Most LDs were performed in North America, 61%, followed by Asia, 29%. The mean recipient age was, 22 years, body mass index, 
19 kg per square meter, and female-slash-male ratio, 11.4. Volvulus, N equals 17, and ischemia, N equals 17, were the most frequent of causes. 52% of patients were at home at the time of transplant. 1-slash-5-year patient survival for LD and DD was 74.2-49.8% versus 80.3-48.1%, respectively, P equals 0.826. 1-slash-5-year graft survival was 60.3-40.6% versus 69.2-36.1%, respectively, P equals 0.956. Acute rejection was diagnosed in 47% of LD versus 51% of DD, P equals 0.723. Conclusion Worldwide, LDH has been rarely performed. This retrospective matched ITR analysis revealed no difference in rejection and in patient-slash-graft survival between LD and DDH. The goal of intraoperative blood loss and major hepatobiliary resection for parahylocholangiocarcinoma, saving patients from a heavy complication burden. Objective To determine the goal of intraoperative blood loss and hepatectomy for parahylocholangiocarcinoma. Background Although massive bleeding can negatively affect the postoperative course, the target value of intraoperative bleeding to reduce its adverse impact is unknown. Methods Patients who underwent major hepatectomy for parahylocholangiocarcinoma between 2010 and 2019 were included. Intraoperative blood loss was adjusted for body weight, adjusted blood loss, ABL, and the overall postoperative complications were evaluated by the Comprehensive Complication Index, CCI. The impact of ABL on CCI was assessed by the restricted cubic spline regression. Results A total of 425 patients were included. The median ABL was 17.8, interquartile range, 11.8 to 26.3 milliliter slash kg, and the CCI was 40.6, 33.7 to 49.5. 63, 14.8%, patients had an ABL less than 10 milliliter slash kg, nearly half, 45.4%, of the patients were in the range of 10 less than or equal to ABL less than 20 milliliters slash kg, and 37, 8.7%, patients had an ABL greater than 40 milliliters slash kg. The spline regression analysis showed a nonlinear incremental association between ABL and CCI. CCI remained flat with an ABL under 10 milliliters slash kg, increased significantly with an ABL ranging from 10 to 20 milliliters slash kg, grew gradually with an ABL over 20 milliliters slash kg. These inflection points of 10 and 20 milliliters slash kg were almost consistent with the cutoff values identified by the recursive partitioning technique. After adjusting for other risk factors for the postoperative course, the spline regression identified a similar model. Conclusions ABL had a nonlinear aggravating effect on CCI after hepatectomy for parahylocholangiocarcinoma. The primary goal of ABL should be less than 10 milliliters slash kg to minimize CCI. Minimally invasive versus open liver resections for hepatocellular carcinoma in patients with metabolic syndrome. Objective To compare minimally invasive, 
MILR, and open liver resections, OLRs, for hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC, in patients with metabolic syndrome, MS. Background Liver resections for HCC on MS are associated with high perioperative morbidity and mortality. No data on the minimally invasive approach in this setting exist. Material and Methods A multicenter study involving 24 institutions was conducted. Propensity scores were calculated, and inverse probability weighting was used to weight comparisons. Short-term and long-term outcomes were investigated. Results A total of 996 patients were included, 580 in OLR and 416 in Miller. After weighing, groups were well-matched. Blood loss was similar between groups, OLR 275.9 plus or minus 3.1 versus Miller 226 plus or minus 4.0, P equals 0.146. There were no significant differences in 90-day morbidity, 38.9% versus 31.9% OLRs and Millers, P equals 0.08, and mortality. 2.4% 2.4% versus 2.2% OLRs and Millers, P equals 0.84. Millers were associated with lower rates of major complications, 9.3% versus 15.3%, P equals 0.015, post-hepatectomy liver failure, 0.6% versus 4.3%, P equals 0.008, and bile leaks, 2.2% versus 6.4%, P equals 0.003. Ascites was significantly lower at postoperative day 1, 2.7% versus 8.1%. P equals 0.002. And day 3, 3.1% versus 11.4%. P less than 0.001. Hospital stay was significantly shorter, 5.8 plus or minus 1.9 versus 7.5 plus or minus 1.7. P less than 0.001. There was no significant difference in overall survival and disease-free survival. Conclusions Miller for HCC on MS is associated with equivalent perioperative and oncological outcomes to OLRs. Fewer major complications, post-hepatectomy liver failures, ascites, and bile leaks can be obtained, with a shorter hospital stay. The combination of lower short-term severe morbidity and equivalent oncologic outcomes favor Miller for MS when feasible. Video grading of pancreatic anastomoses during robotic pancreatidudenectomy to assess both learning curve and the risk of pancreatic fistula, a post hoc analysis of the LALAPS 3 training program. Objective To assess the learning curve of pancreaticojejunostomy during robotic pancreatidudenectomy, RPD, and to predict the risk of postoperative pancreatic fistula, POPF, by using the Objective Structured Assessment of Technical Skills. OSATS, taking the fistula risk into account. Background RPD is a challenging procedure that requires extensive training and confirmation of adequate surgical performance. Video grading, modified for RPD, of the pancreatic anastomosis could assess the learning curve of RPD and predict the risk of POP. Methods Post hoc assessment of patients prospectively included in four Dutch centers and a nationwide LALAPS 3 training program for RPD. Video grading of the pancreaticojejunostomy was performed by two graders using OSATS, attainable score, 12 to 60. The main outcomes were the combined OSATS of the two graders and POPF, grade BC. 
cumulative some analyzed a turning point in the learning curve for surgical skill. Logistic regression determined the cutoff for OSATs. Patients were categorized for POP risk, E, low, intermediate, and high, based on the updated alternative fistula risk scores. Results Videos from 153 pancreatic anastomoses were included. Median OSAT score was 48, interquartile range, 41 to 52, points and with a turning point at 33 procedures. POP occurred in 39 patients, 25.5%. An OSAT score below 49, present in 77 patients, 50.3%, was associated with an increased risk of POP, odds ratio, 4.01, P equals 0.004. The POP rate was 43.6% with OSATs less than 49 versus 15.8% with OSATs greater than or equal to 49. The updated alternative fistula risk scores category soft pancreatic texture was the second strongest prognostic factor of POP, odds ratio, 3.37, P equals 0.040. Median cumulative surgical experience was 17 years, interquartile range, 8 to 21. Conclusions Video grading of the pancreatic anastomosis in RPD using OSATs identified a learning curve, and a reduced risk of POP in case of better surgical performance. Video grading may provide a valid method to surgical training, quality control, and improvement. Radical resection combined with intestinal autotransplantation for locally advanced pancreatic cancer after neoadjuvant therapy, a report of 36 consecutive cases. Objective. To achieve radical resection of locally advanced pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, PDAC, and tested the safety and benefits of intestinal autotransplantation in pancreatic surgery. Background. PDAC has an extremely dismal prognosis. Radical resection was proved to improve the prognosis of patients with PAC, however, the locally advanced disease had a very low resection rate currently. We explored and evaluated whether the combination of modern advances in systemic treatment and this macroinvasive surgery was feasible in clinical practice. Methods Patients diagnosed as PAC with superior mesenteric artery involvement and with or without celiac trunk involvement were included. Patients were treated with modified fofurinox chemotherapy with or without anti-PD-1 antibodies and were applied to tumor resection combined with intestinal autotransplantation. Data on operative parameters, pathologic results, mortality, morbidity, and survival were analyzed. Results A total of 36 consecutive cases were applied to this strategy and underwent radical resection combined with intestinal autotransplantation. Among these patients, 24 of them received the Whipple procedure, 11 patients received total pancreatectomy, and the other one patient received distal pancreatectomy. The median operation time was 539 minutes. Postoperative pathology showed an R0 resection rate of 94.4%, and tumor invasion of a superior mesenteric artery or superior mesenteric vein was confirmed in 32 patients. The median number of dissected lymph nodes was 43, and 25 patients were positive for lymph node metastasis. The median time of intensive care unit stay was 4 days. Two patients died within 30 days after surgery due to multi-organ failure. The severe postoperative adverse events, equal to or higher than grade 3, were observed in 12 out of 36 patients, and diarrhea, gastroparesis, 
and abdominal infection were the most frequent adverse events. Postoperative hospital stay was averagely of 34 days. The recurrence-free survival is 13.6 months. The median overall survival of patients after diagnosis and after surgery was 21.4 months and 14.5 months, respectively. Conclusions Our attempt suggests the safety of this modality and may be clinically beneficial for highly selective patients with PAC. However, the experience in multidisciplinary pancreatic cancer care and intestinal transplantation is warranted. Next article is from Journal of American Medical Association Surgery. Gentrification is a factor in the incidence of firearm injuries. Importance Firearm injuries are an epidemic in the U.S. More than 45,000 fatal injuries were recorded in 2020 alone. Gaining a deeper understanding of socioeconomic factors that may contribute to increasing firearm injury rates is critical to prevent future injuries. Objective to explore whether neighborhood gentrification is associated with firearm injury incidence rates over time. Design, setting, and participants This cross-sectional study used nationwide, urban U.S. Census tract-level data on gentrification between 2010 and 2019 and firearm injuries data collected between 2014 and 2019. All urban census tracts, as defined by Rural Urban Commuting Area Codes 1-3, were included in the analysis, for a total of 59,379 tracts examined from 2014 through 2019. Data were analyzed from January 2022 through April 2023. Exposure gentrification, defined to be an area in a central city neighborhood with median housing prices appreciating over the median regional value and a median household income at or below the 40th percentile of the median regional household income and continuing for at least two consecutive years. Main outcomes and measures the number of firearm injuries, controlling for census tract population characteristics. Results A total of 59,379 urban census tracts were evaluated for gentrification, of these tracts, 14,125, 23.8%, were identified as gentrifying, involving approximately 57 million residents annually. The firearm injury incidence rate for gentrifying neighborhoods was 62% higher than the incidence rate in non-gentrifying neighborhoods with similar socio-demographic characteristics, incidence rate ratio, IRR, 1.62, 95% C, 1.56 to 1.69. In a multivariable analysis, firearm injury incidence rates increased by 57% per year for low-income census tracts that did not gentrify IRR, 1.57, 95% C, 1.56 to 1.58, 42% per year for high-income tracts that did not gentrify IRR, 1.42, 95% C, 1.41 to 1.43, and 49% per year for gentrifying tracts, IRR, 1.49, 95% C, 1.48 to 1.50. Neighborhoods undergoing the gentrification process experienced an additional 26% increase in firearm injury incidence above baseline increase experienced in neighborhoods not undergoing gentrification, IRR, 1.26, 95% C, 1.23 to 1.30. Conclusions and relevance results of this study suggest that gentrification is associated with an increase in the incidence of firearm injuries within gentrifying neighborhoods. Social disruption and residential displacement associated with gentrification may help explain this finding, 
although future research is needed to evaluate the underlying mechanisms. These findings support use of targeted firearm prevention interventions in communities experiencing gentrification. Search in sex and long-term postoperative outcomes among patients undergoing common surgeries. Important sex and gender-based differences in a surgeon's medical practice and communication may be factors in patients' perioperative outcomes. Patients treated by female surgeons have improved 30-day outcomes. However, whether these outcomes persist over longer follow-up has not been assessed. Objective to examine whether surgeon sex is associated with 90-day and 1-year outcomes among patients undergoing common surgeries. Design, setting, and participants A population-based retrospective cohort study was conducted in adults in Ontario, Canada, undergoing one of 25 common elective or emergent surgeries between January 1, 2007, and December 31, 2019. Analysis was performed between July 15 and October 20, 2022. Exposure Surgeon Sex Main Outcomes and Measures An Adverse Postoperative Event, Defined as the Composite of Death, readmission or complication, was assessed at 90 days and one year following surgery. Secondarily, each of these outcomes was assessed individually. Outcomes were compared between patients treated by female and male surgeons using generalized estimating equations with clustering at the level of the surgical procedure, accounting for patient, procedure, surgeon, anesthesiologist, and facility-level covariates. Results among 1-165-711 included patients, 151054 were treated by a female and 101-4657 by a male surgeon. Overall, 14.3% of the patients had one or more adverse postoperative outcomes at 90 days and 25.0% had one or more adverse postoperative outcomes one year following surgery. Among these, 2.0% of patients died within 90 days and 4.3% died within one year. Multivariable adjusted rates of the composite endpoint were higher among patients treated by male than female surgeons at both 90 days, 13.9% versus 12.5%, adjusted odds ratio, AOR, 1.08, 95% C, 1.03 to 1.13, and one year, 25.0% versus 20.7%, AOR, 1.06, 95% C, 1.01 to 1.12. Similar patterns were observed for mortality at 90 days, 0.8% versus half a percent, AOR 1.25, 95% C, 1.12 to 1.39, and one year, 2.4% versus 1.6%, AOR, 1.24, 95% C, 1.13 to 1.36. Conclusions and relevance after accounting for patient, procedure, surgeon, anesthesiologist, and hospital characteristics, the findings of this cohort study suggest that patients treated by female surgeons have lower rates of adverse postoperative outcomes including death at 90 days and one year after surgery compared with those treated by male surgeons. These findings further support differences in patient outcomes based on physician sex that warrant deeper study regarding underlying causes and potential solutions. Next article is from British Journal of Surgery. Immunoreact 6, Weak Immune Surveillance Characterizes Early Onset Rectal Cancer. Background 
Colon cancer in young patients is often associated with hereditary syndromes, however, in early-onset rectal cancer, mutations of these genes are rarely observed. The aim of this study was to analyze the features of the local immune microenvironment and the mutational pattern in early-onset rectal cancer. Methods Commonly mutated genes were analyzed within a rectal cancer series from the University Hospital of Padova. Mutation frequency and immune gene expression in a cohort from the Cancer Genome Atlas, TCGA, were compared and immune cell infiltration levels in the healthy rectal mucosa adjacent to rectal cancers were evaluated in the immunological microenvironment in rectal adenocarcinoma treatment 1 and 2, Immunoreact, series. Results In the author's series, the mutation frequency of BRAF, CRAS, and NES, as well as microsatellite instability frequency, were not different between early and late-onset rectal cancer. In the Cancer Genome Atlas series, among the genes with the most considerable difference in mutation frequency between young and older patients, seven genes are involved in the immune response and CD69, CD3, and CD8 beta expression was lower in early-onset rectal cancer. In the immunological microenvironment in rectal adenocarcinoma treatment 1 and 2 series, young patients had a lower rate of CD4 plus T cells, but higher T-regulator infiltration in the rectal mucosa. Conclusion Early-onset rectal cancer is rarely associated with common hereditary syndromes. The tumor microenvironment is characterized by a high frequency of mutations impairing the local immune surveillance mechanisms and low expression of immune editing-related genes. A constitutively low number of CD4T cells associated with a high number of T-regulators indicates an imbalance in the immune surveillance mechanisms. Phase I study of intraperitoneal arenotecan combined with palliative systemic chemotherapy in patients with colorectal peritoneal metastases. Background Patients with colorectal peritoneal metastases who are not eligible for cytoreductive surgery, CRS, and hyperthermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy, HIPEC, owing to extensive peritoneal disease have a poor prognosis. It was hypothesized that these patients may benefit from the addition of intraperitoneal arenotecan to standard palliative systemic chemotherapy. Methods This was a classical 3 plus 3 phase I dose escalation trial in patients with colorectal peritoneal metastases who were not eligible for CRS HIPEC. Intraperitoneal arenotecan was administered every two weeks, concomitantly with systemic Fofox, 5-fluorouracil, folinic acid, oxaliplatin bevacizumab. The primary objective was to determine the maximum tolerated dose and dose-limiting toxicities. Secondary objectives were to elucidate the systemic and intraperitoneal pharmacokinetics, safety profile, and efficacy. Results 18 patients were treated. No dose-limiting toxicities were observed with 50 mg, 4 patients, and 75 mg, 9 patients, intraperitoneal arenotecan. Two dose-limiting toxicities occurred with 100 mg arenotecan among five patients. The maximum tolerated dose of intraperitoneal arenotecan was established to be 75 mg, and it was well tolerated. Intraperitoneal exposure to SN38, active metabolite of arenotecan, was high compared with systemic exposure, median intraperitoneal area under the curve, AUC, to systemic AUC ratio 4.6. 13 patients had a partial radiological response and 5 had stable disease. 
four patients showed a complete response during post-treatment diagnostic laparoscopy. Five patients underwent salvage resection or CRS HIPAC. Median overall survival was 23.9 months. Conclusion Administration of 75 mg intraperitoneal or renotecan concomitantly with systemic Fofox bevacizumab was safe and well tolerated. Intraperitoneal SN38 exposure was high and prolonged. As oncological outcomes were promising, intraperitoneal administration of arenotecan may be a good alternative to other, more invasive and costly treatment options. A phase 2 study is currently accruing. Next article is from Journal of Vascular Surgery. Gender disparities in patients with aortoiliac disease requiring open operative intervention. Objective. Peripheral artery disease is known to affect males and females in different proportions. Disparate surgical outcomes have been quantified after endovascular aortic aneurysm repair, arteriovenous fistula creation, and treatment of critical limb ischemia. The aim of this study is to objectively quantify the sex differences in outcomes in patients undergoing open surgical intervention for aortoiliac occlusive disease. Methods Patients were identified in the aortoiliac occlusive disease vascular quality initiative database who underwent aortobifemoral bypass or aortic thrombonedarterectomy as determined by current procedural terminology codes between 2012 and 2019. Patients with a minimum of one year follow up were included. Risk differences, RDs, by sex were calculated using a binomial regression model in 30-day and 1-year incidence of mortality and limb salvage. Additionally, incidence of surgical complications including prolonged length of stay, greater than 10 days, reoperation and change in renal function, greater than half a milligram slash DL rise from baseline, were recorded. Inverse probability weighting was used to standardize demographic and medical history characteristics. Multivariate logistic regression models were employed to conduct analyses of the before-mentioned clinical outcomes, controlling for known confounders. Results Of 16,218 eligible patients from the VQI data during the study period, 6,538, 40.3%, were female. The mean age, body mass index, and race were not statistically different between sexes. Although there was no statistically significant difference detected in mortality between males and females at 30 days postoperatively, females had an increased crude one-year mortality with an RD of 0.014, 95% confidence interval, 0.01 to 0.02, p-value less than 0.001. Males had a higher rate of a postoperative change in renal function with an RD of minus 0.02, 95% confidence interval, minus 0.03 to minus 0.01, p less than 0.001. Conclusions Although there was no sex-based mortality difference at 30 days, there was a statistically significant increase in mortality in females after open aortoiliac intervention at one year based on our weighted model. Male patients are statistically significantly more likely to have a decline in renal function after their procedures when compared with females. Postoperative complications including prolonged hospital stay, reoperation, and wound disruption were similar among the sexes, as was limb preservation rates at one year. Further studies should focus on elucidating the underlying factors contributing to sex-based differences in clinical outcomes following aortoiliac intervention.
A comparative effectiveness study of carotid intervention for long-term stroke prevention in patients with severe asymptomatic stenosis from a large integrated health system. Objective The results of current prospective trials comparing the effectiveness of carotid endarterectomy, CEA, versus standard medical therapy for long-term stroke prevention in patients with asymptomatic carotid stenosis, ACS, will not be available for several years. In this study, we compared the observed effectiveness of CEA in standard medical therapy versus standard medical therapy alone to prevent ipsilateral stroke in a contemporary cohort of patients with ACS. Methods This cohort study was conducted in a large integrated health system in adult subjects with 70% to 99% ACS, no neurologic symptom within six months, with no prior ipsilateral carotid artery intervention. Causal inference methods were used to emulate a conceptual randomized trial using data from January 1, 2008, through December 31, 2017, for comparing the event-free survival over 96 months between two treatment strategies, one, CEA within 12 months from cohort entry versus, 2, no CEA, standard medical therapy alone. To account for both baseline and time-dependent confounding, inverse probability weighting estimation was used to derive adjusted hazard ratios, and cumulative risk differences were assessed based on two logistic marginal structural models for counterfactual hazards. Propensity scores were data adaptively estimated using superlearning. The primary outcome was ipsilateral anterior ischemic stroke. Results The cohort included 3,824 eligible patients with ACS, mean age, 73.7 years, 57.9% male, 12.3% active smokers, of whom 1,467 underwent CEA in the first year, whereas 2,297 never underwent CEA. The median follow-up was 68 months. A total of 1760 participants, 46% died, 445, 12%, were lost to follow-up, and 158, 4%, experienced ipsilateral stroke. The cumulative risk differences for each year of follow-up showed a protective effect of CEA starting in year 2, risk difference equals 1.1%, 95% confidence interval, half a percent to 1.6%, and persisting to year 8, 2.6%, 95% confidence interval, 0.3% to 4.8%, compared with patients not receiving CEA. Conclusions In this contemporary cohort study of patients with ACS using rigorous analytic methodology, CEA appears to have a small but statistically significant effect on stroke prevention out to 8 years. Further study is needed to appropriately select the subset of patients most likely to benefit from intervention. Association between time to revascularization and limb loss in military femoropopleteal arterial injuries. Objective. Expeditious revascularization is key to limb salvage after arterial injuries, but the relationship between time to revascularization and amputation risk is not well defined. We aim to explore amputation risk based on time to revascularization in a cohort of military femoropopleteal arterial injuries. Methods. A database of vascular injuries from Iraq and Afghanistan casualties, 2004 to 2012, was queried for femoral, common, superficial, or deep, and or popliteal arterial injuries that underwent revascularization. 
time from injury to initial revascularization via shunt or reconstruction, was divided into groups of less than 3 hours, 3 to 6 hours, 6 to 9 hours, and greater than 9 hours, and bivariate comparisons were performed. Results Revascularization times were available for 120 cases. Injury and treatment characteristics by time group were generally similar between time groups. Shunting and vein injuries were more common in limbs revascularized earlier, whereas blast mechanism and fasciotomy were more common with later revascularization. 10 cases, 8%, underwent revascularization in less than 3 hours, 63, 53%, were revascularized in 3 to 6 hours, 33, 28%, in 6 to 9 hours, and 14 after 9 hours. Amputation rates within the cohorts were 10%, 21%, 24%, and 50%, respectively, P equals 0.085, G2 of amputation rates across time groups. The mean plus or minus standard deviation revascularization time for amputated limbs was 442 plus or minus 348 minutes versus 347 plus or minus 183 minutes for salvaged limbs. P equals 0.057. Amputation was performed in 19% of limbs revascularized in less than 6 hours and in 32% revascularized more than 6 hours from injury. P equals 0.112. The greater than 9-hour group, however, had a 50% amputation rate versus 21% for those with revascularization in less than 9 hours. P equals 0.016. Fractures were more common in greater than 9-hour limbs than less than 9-hour limbs, 79% versus 44%, P equals 0.016, but other limb injury characteristics were similar, with no difference in limb injury severity scores. Among 91 salvaged limbs, neither vascular nor other complications were predicted by timed revascularization. All 7 greater than 9-hour limbs had a limb complication, most commonly infection, 71%, and 3 42% required a skin graft to close their fasciotomies. Conclusions Increasing time from injury to initial revascularization was associated with increasing rates of limb loss. Revascularization within three hours of injury resulted in a low amputation rate, whereas one half of limbs treated after nine hours were amputated. Arterial shunting was associated with earlier revascularization and should be considered a mainstay of combat casualty vascular care. Forward-deployed surgical assets play a pivotal role in providing early revascularization and reducing rates of limb loss in modern combat casualties. Next article is from Surgical Endoscopy. Endoscopic dilation with bougies versus balloons in caustic esophageal strictures, 17-year experience from a tertiary care center. Introduction. Endoscopic dilation is the preferred management strategy for caustic esophageal strictures, CES. However, the differences in outcome for different dilators are not clear. We compare the outcome of CES using bougie and balloon dilators. Methods. Between January 2000 and December 2016, the following data of all the patients with CES were collected, demographic parameters, substance ingestion, number of strictures, Number of dilations required to achieve greater than or equal to 14 mm dilation, post-dilation recurrence, and total dilations. Patients were divided into two groups for the type of dilator, i.e., bougie or balloon. 
The two groups were compared for baseline parameter, technical success, short and long-term clinical success, refractory strictures, recurrence rates, and major complications. Results Of the 189 patients, mean age 32.17 plus or minus 12.12 years, studied, 119, 62.9% were males. 122, 64.5%, patients underwent bougie dilation and 67, 35.5%, received balloon dilation. Technical success, 90.1% versus 68.7%, p less than 0.001, short-term clinical success, 65.6% versus 46.3%, p-value 0.01, and long-term clinical success, 86.9% versus 64.2%, p less than 0.01, were higher for bougie dilators compared to balloon dilators. 24, 12.7%, patients developed adverse events which were similar for two groups. On multivariate analysis, use of bougie dilators, AOR 4.868, 95% C1.027 to 23.079, short-term clinical success, AOR 5.785, 95% C1.203 to 27.825, and refractory strictures, AOR 0.151, 95% C0.033 to 0.690, were independent predictors of long-term clinical success. Conclusion Use of bougie dilators is associated with better clinical success in patients with CES compared to balloon dilators with similar rates of adverse events. Next article is from Annals of Surgical Oncology. Long-term patient reported outcomes comparing oncoplastic breast surgery and conventional breast-conserving surgery, a propensity score matched analysis. Introduction. Oncoplastic breast surgery, OBS, combines plastic surgery techniques with conventional breast-conserving surgery, BCS, and expands BCS eligibility. Limited data are available on patient reported outcomes, pros, after ODS. Here we compare long-term pros after OBS and BCS utilizing the breast cue. Patients and methods. Women undergoing OBS or BCS between 2006 and 2019 who completed greater than or equal to one long-term breast cue survey three to five years postoperatively were identified. Baseline characteristics were compared between women who underwent OBS slash BCS. Women who underwent OBS were paired with those who underwent BCS using 1-2 propensity matching, by age, body mass index, BMI, race, T-stage, and multifocality. Breast Q scores were compared preoperatively and 3-5 years postoperatively. Results A total of 297 patients were included for analysis, 99 OBS-198 BCS. Women who underwent OBS were younger, P less than 0.001, and had higher BMI, P equals 0.005, and multifocal disease incidence, P equals 0.004. There was no difference between groups in nodal stage, re-excision rates, axillary surgery, chemotherapy, endocrine therapy, or radiotherapy. After propensity matching preoperatively, women who underwent OBS reported lower psychosocial well-being, 63 versus 100, P equals 0.039, 
but similar breast satisfaction and sexual well-being compared with women who underwent BCS. However, only three patients who underwent BCS had preoperative breast Q scores available for review. In long-term follow-up, women who underwent OBS reported lower psychosocial scores, 74 versus 93, P equals 0.011, 4 years postoperatively, but not at 5 years, 76 versus 77, P equals 0.83. There was no difference in long-term breast satisfaction or sexual well-being. Conclusions Women who undergo OBS present with a larger disease burden and may represent a group of non-traditional BCS candidates, they reported similar long-term breast satisfaction and sexual well-being compared with women who undergo BCS. While women who underwent OBS reported lower psychosocial well-being scores preoperatively and during a portion of the follow-up period, this difference was no longer seen at five years postoperatively. Next article is from Obesity Surgery. Laparoscopic Assisted Transversus Abdominis Plane, TAP, Block versus Port Site Infiltration with Local Anesthetics in Bariatric Surgery, a Double-Blind Randomized Controlled Trial. Background The Transversus Abdominis Plane, TAP, Block has shown great potential usefulness in the management of postoperative pain, however, there is lacking evidence regarding its use in bariatric surgery. This randomized double-blind trial was aimed at comparing the effectiveness of the TAP block and port site infiltration, PSI, in patients undergoing bariatric surgery. Methods We included patients greater than or equal to 18 years old undergoing bariatric surgery. From July 2020 to July 2021, all eligible patients were randomized to receive either laparoscopic-assisted TAP block or PSI. Demographic and clinical data were collected and analyzed. Results. During the study period, we included 113 patients. 51 were allocated to the TAP block group and 62 to the PSI group. The mean age was 47.9 plus or minus 11.2 years, 88, 77.9%. Patients were female, and mean BMI was 40.5 plus or minus 5.9 kilograms slash M2. Operative time was 110 plus or minus 42 minutes versus 114 plus or minus 41 minutes in the TAP block and PSI groups, P equals 0.658. At 24 hours after surgery, pain on the vas was 2.5 plus or minus 2.6 versus 2.3 plus or minus 2.1, P equals 0.661. No significant difference between the groups was noted at 3, 6, 12, and 18 hours. Also, opioid and antiemetic consumption, the length of stay, 3.4 plus or minus 1.5 days versus 3.2 plus or minus 1.1 days, P equals 0.392, and satisfaction score, 154 plus or minus 10 pints versus 154 plus or minus 16 pints, P equals 0.828, were similar in the two groups. Conclusions Patients undergoing bariatric surgery and receiving either the TAP block or the PSI had similar postoperative pain, nausea, length of stay, and satisfaction. As PSI is technically easier and more reproducible, it might be the first choice for postoperative multimodal analgesia in bariatric surgery.
Next article is from Journal of the American College of Surgeons. Does trauma center volume account for the association between trauma center verification level and in-hospital mortality among children injured by firearms in California? Background Heterogeneity in trauma center designation and injury volume offer possible explanations for inconsistencies in pediatric trauma center designations association with lower mortality among children. We hypothesize that rigorous trauma center verification, regardless of volume, would be associated with lower firearm injury-associated mortality in children. Study Design This retrospective cohort study leveraged the California Office of Statewide Health Planning and Development Patient Discharge Data. Data from children aged 0 to 14 years in California from 2005 to 2018 directly transported with firearm injuries were analyzed. American College of Surgeons, ACS, trauma center verification level was the primary predictor of in-hospital mortality. Center's annual firearm injury volume data were analyzed as a mediator of the association between center verification level and in-hospital mortality. Two mixed-effects multivariable logistic regressions modeled in-hospital mortality and the estimated association with center verification while adjusting for patient demographic and clinical characteristics. One model included the center's firearm injury volume and one did not. Results The cohort included 2,409 children with a mortality rate of 8.6% and equals 206. Adjusted odds of mortality were lower for children at adult level I, adjusted odds ratio, AOR, 0.38, 95% C0.19 to 0.80, pediatric, AOR 0.17, 95% C0.05 to 0.61 and dual, AOR 0.48, 95% C0.25 to 0.93, trauma centers compared to non-trauma slash level 3 slash 4 centers. Firearm injury volume did not mediate the association between ACS trauma center verification and mortality, AOR slash 10 patient increase in volume 1.01. 95% C0.99 to 1.03. Conclusions Trauma center verification level, regardless of firearm injury volume, was associated with lower firearm injury-associated mortality, suggesting that the ACS verification process is contributing to achieving optimal outcomes. Surgeon Perspectives on Daily Presentation of Ethical Dilemmas, a Qualitative Study Background Surgeons encounter and navigate a unique set of ethical dilemmas. The American College of Surgeons, ACS, previously identified six core ethical issues central to the practice of surgery, but there have been no reports of the true range and complexity of ethical dilemmas encountered by surgeons in their daily practice. Qualitative research is well positioned to address this question. Study Design We conducted in-depth interviews with attending surgeons across multiple surgical subspecialties at a large, urban, academic medical center asking them to describe the most common ethical dilemmas they encounter in day-to-day -day practice. Interviews were recorded, transcribed, and coded according to a grounded theory, inductive approach. Results 30 attending surgeons were interviewed, representing 12 different general surgery subspecialties. The majority of dilemmas identified pertain to four of the six ACS-identified core ethical issues, professional obligations, competition of interests, truth-telling, and end-of-life care. 
No participants described dilemmas relating to the themes of confidentiality or surrogate decision-making. Approximately one-third of participants identified ethical issues not well characterized by the ACS core principles, most often relating to the pressure to provide care that is not medically indicated. There was strong support for a formalized surgical ethics curriculum. Conclusions Although the ACS defined core ethical issues in surgery appropriately captured many ethical dilemmas identified by participants, surgeons described several scenarios not well characterized by these themes. A dedicated surgical ethics curriculum may help to better equip surgeons to navigate the ethical dilemmas they are likely to face in practice. Next article is from Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Novel cross-linked polysaccharide polyelectrolyte hemostatic foam improves survival compared to combat gauze in swine femoral artery hemorrhage model. Background Uncontrolled hemorrhage is the leading cause of preventable death in combat and civilian trauma. Efficacious hemostatic agents in junctional hemorrhage can quell blood loss and improve survival. We hypothesize that a novel hemostatic foam of starch and chitosan would improve hemostasis, and thereby increase survival in the swine femoral artery hemorrhage model when compared with combat gauze, CG. Methods A novel hemostatic foam of starch and chitosan was created and modified during the study period. 30 pigs, 4 excluded, were assigned a treatment using either foam version 1, FV1, N equals 9, or 2, FV2, N equals 8, or N equals 9, in a standard swine femoral artery hemorrhage model. Animals were observed for 150 minutes. Outcomes assessed included hemostasis, survival, post-treatment blood loss, four-fluid volume, and hemodynamic and laboratory trends. Results Hemostasis prior to 150 minutes was similar with 44.4%, 77.8%, and 50% of swine treated with CG, FV1 and FV2, respectively, Kaplan-Meier and log rank test, KMLR, P greater than 0.05. Survival to 150 minutes was improved in swine treated with FV1, 100%, compared with CG, 55.6%, KMLRP equals 0.02. Survival was similar between FV1 and FV2, 75%, KMLRP greater than 0.05, and between CG and FV2, KMLRP greater than 0.05. Using mixed model for longitudinal data, mean arterial pressure decreased significantly in CG and FV2 treated swine, while there was no significant change in mean arterial pressure in FV1 treated swine. Trends in lactic acid, hematocrit, platelets, INR, and thrombolistography were more favorable for FV1 compared with CG. Conclusion In this preclinical study of junctional hemorrhage, Survival was improved in swine treated with version 1 of a novel chitosan slash starch foam compared with CG. Trends in hemodynamics and laboratory data were also more favorable in the FV1 treated swine. This novel hemostatic foam may be an effective alternative to current hemostatic agents. Bioadhesive patch is a parenchymal sparing treatment of acute traumatic pulmonary air leaks. Introduction Traumatic pulmonary injuries are common in chest trauma. 
Persistent air leaks occur in up to 46% of patients depending on injury severity. Prolonged leaks are associated with increased morbidity and cost. Prior work from our first-generation pectin patches successfully sealed pulmonary leaks in a cadaveric swine model. We now test the next-generation pectin patch against wedge resection in the management of air leaks in anesthetized swine. Methods A continuous air leak of 10% to 20% was created to the anterior surface of the lung in intubated and sedated swine. Animals were treated with a two-ply pectin patch or stapled wedge resection, SW. Tidal volumes, TVs, were recorded pre-injury and post-injury. Following repair, TVs were recorded, a chest tube was placed, and animals were observed for presence air leak at closure and for an additional 90 minutes while on positive pressure ventilation. Mann-Whitney U test and Fisher's exact test used to compare continuous and categorical data between groups. Results 31 animals underwent either SW15 or pectin patch repair, PPR, 16. Baseline characteristics were similar between animals accepting baseline TV, SW, 10.3 milliliters kg versus PPR, 10.9 milliliters kg, P equals 0.03. There was no difference between groups for severity of injury based on percent of TB loss, SW, 15% versus PPR, 14%, P equals 0.5. There was no difference in TB between groups following repair, SW, 10.2 milliliters kg versus PPR, 10.2 milliliters kg, P equals 1, or at the end of observation, SW, 9.8 milliliters kg versus PPR, 10.2 milliliters kg, P equals 0.4. One chamber intermittent air leaks were observed in three of the PPR animals, versus one in the SW group, P equals 0.6. Conclusion Pectin patches effectively sealed the lung following injury and were non-inferior when compared with wedge resection for the management of acute traumatic air leaks. Pectin patches may offer a parenchymal sparing option for managing such injuries, although studies evaluating biodurability are needed. Next article is from the American Journal of Surgery. Impact of an automated periprocedural digital health intervention on rates of emergency department visits and readmissions. Background. Providing timely periprocedural education, reminders, and check-ins can improve patient adherence and clinical outcomes. We sought to retrospectively evaluate the impact of a periprocedural digital health tool on emergency department, ed, visits and readmissions. Methods. A digital health tool for periprocedural care engaged patients at scheduled intervals, resulting in an overall engagement score. Multivariate models determine predictors of tool engagement and post-procedural 30 and 90-day rehospitalizations and end visits. Results 11,737 unique completed procedures were analyzed from 10,438 patients. Patients of Black and Latinx race slash ethnicity, versus white, those with Medicare and Medicaid insurance, versus commercial, and those with non-activated patient portals, versus activated, were less likely to engage. After adjustment for confounders, higher engagement with the tool was associated with lower rates of 30-day hospitalizations, or 0.64, 90-day hospitalizations, or 0.65, and 90-day at visits, or 0.77. 
Conclusions Highly engaged patients had fewer 30-day and 90-day ED visit and readmissions, even after adjustment for key confounders. Engagement, and thus the resulting benefits, were not equitably distributed. Association between surgical delay and outcomes among patients with invasive cutaneous melanoma. Background. The relationship between surgical delay and outcomes for patients with cutaneous melanoma is understudied. The objectives of this study were to determine the impact of surgical delay on regional nodal involvement and mortality in patients with cutaneous melanoma. Methods. Retrospective study of patients diagnosed with clinically node-negative invasive cutaneous melanoma from 2004 to 2018. Outcomes included regional lymph node disease and overall survival. Multivariable logistic regression and Cox proportional hazards models were constructed to adjust for pertinent clinical factors. Results. Of 423,001 patients, 21.8% experienced a surgical delay, greater than or equal to 45 days. These patients were more likely to have nodal involvement, OR 1.09, P equals 0.01. Surgical delay, HR 1.14, P less than 0.001, black race, HR 1.34, P equals 0.002 and Medicaid, HR 1.92, P less than 0.001, were associated with lower survival. Patients treated at academic-slash-research, HR 0.87, P less than 0.001 or Integrated Network Cancer Programs, HR 0.89, P equals 0.001, had improved survival. Conclusions Surgical delay was frequent and resulted in higher rates of lymph node involvement and decreased overall survival. How Surgeons Use Risk Calculators and Non-Clinical Factors for Informed Consent and Shared Decision-Making, a Qualitative Study Background The discussion of risks, benefits, and alternatives to surgery with patients is a defining component of informed consent. As shared decision-making has become central to surgeon-patient communication, risk calculators have emerged as a tool to aid communication and decision-making. To optimize informed consent, it is necessary to understand how surgeons assess and communicate risk and the role of risk calculators in this process. Methods We conducted interviews with 13 surgeons from two institutions to understand how surgeons assess risk, the role of risk calculators in decision-making, and how surgeons approach risk communication during informed consent. We performed a qualitative analysis of interviews based on SRQR guidelines. Results our analysis yielded insights regarding a. the landscape and approach to obtaining surgical consent, b. detailed perceptions regarding the value and design of assessing and communicating risk, and c. practical considerations regarding the future of personalized risk communication in decision-making. Above all, we found that non-clinical factors such as health and risk literacy are changing how surgeons assess and communicate risk, which diverges from traditional risk calculators. Conclusion Principally, we found that surgeons incorporate a range of clinical and non-clinical factors to risk stratify patients and determine how to optimally frame and discuss risk with individual patients. We observed that surgeons' perception of risk communication, 
and the importance of eliciting patient preferences to direct shared decision-making, did not consistently align with patient priorities. This study underscored criticisms of risk calculators and novel decision aids, which must be addressed prior to greater adoption. Next article is from World Journal of Surgery. Effective preoperative carbohydrate drink and postoperative chewing gum on postoperative nausea and vomiting in patients undergoing daycare laparoscopic cholecystectomy, a randomized controlled trial. Background Postoperative nausea and vomiting, PONV, causes an unexpected prolonged hospital stay after ambulatory surgery. Novel measures such as preoperative loading of oral carbohydrates and postoperative chewing gum have recently gained momentum for postoperative recovery. This study evaluated the effects of preoperative carbohydrate loading and postoperative chewing gum, CG, on POMP after daycare laparoscopic cholecystectomy, LC. Methods A total of 100 patients were randomized to group A, preoperative carbohydrate loading with 200 milliliters of water with 25 grams of carbohydrate and postoperative chewing gum, CG, when the patient responded to his slash her name and group B, standard care. The incidence of POMB and pain was assessed by using visual analog scale. Quality of recovery, CUR15, was assessed by using CUR15 questionnaire at 6 hours, 24 hours and 48 hours after surgery. Results The incidence of POMB and pain was lower in group A, however, it was not significant, P greater than 0.05. The severity of POMB, pain and the need for rescue antiemetic was significantly lower in group A, P less than 0.05. The episodes of POMB and required dose of antiemetic were less in group A. Group A also had a significantly higher CUR15 score at all time points, P less than 0.001. Preoperative dyspepsia was also noticed as a significant confounding predictor for postoperative vomiting. Conclusion Preoperative carbohydrate drinks and early postoperative CG reduces the severity of POMB and requirement of antiemetics in patients undergoing LC. Hence, these simple measures can be used as a standard of care to optimize perioperative care in patients undergoing daycare surgery. Thank you for listening to this week in surgery, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.